seeing the unseen world. Uh, and today we're going to see uh, the first vision, the picture of Jesus, of who he is and who he is now. If you would please stand if you are able as we pay attention to the reading of God's word. This is from Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, and according to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Please be seated. One of the big questions driving the book of Revelation, one of the big questions that uh, John and the Holy Spirit is trying to answer through the writing of this book Uh, was this apparent dichotomy that was noticeable in the early church and also still noticeable today. And that was this. On the one hand, the early Christians, the churches, they knew knew their theology. They knew that Christ had ascended to heaven and was reigning now. And yet, at the same time, they also knew that they were getting crushed. And so the question was, that people were asking, people were wondering, is how is that possible How is it possible for Jesus to be reigning in heaven as our king over all the earth, the ruler of all the nations on earth, and yet at the same time, those same nations are crushing us? How does that even make sense together? How does that even work together? Uh, Or maybe you've thought that. Maybe you felt that yourself, thinking, okay, we know Jesus is reigning right now. We know Jesus is king. We know that we have the power of the Spirit, uh, and yet we see the church in the West, at least, shrinking. Uh, We see our power diminishing in the world. We see ourselves becoming more and more uh, the weird part of society, the outcasts. Uh, We feel crushed by our circumstances. We feel often crushed by our own sin. We feel crushed by the temptations that face us. We feel crushed by the pressure on the seeming power of the culture to exert so much pressure over us. And maybe you're asking yourself, how is that even possible if Jesus is reigning right now? 
here's the expectation that we're having. The expectation in that is that power means or must mean power, place, reputation, and influence in and of the workings of the world. But God never promises that. What do we know? We know the kingdom, the paradox of the kingdom, is that things are upside down. There's suffering before glory. We know that Jesus said before something can truly come to life, first it has to die, like a seed. Uh, we know the truth, the paradox of the Christian faith is that we're, we are born into death. And then through the Spirit, we die into life. That's the upside-down paradox of the kingdom. And so this second part of the introduction, chapter 1 is the introduction to the book of Revelation, the second part of the introduction lays out some big, major, main themes that answer that question. How is it possible for Jesus to be reigning now and for the church to be suffering? Uh, And those big questions being answered, those main themes being introduced, it sets the stage uh, for us to help us understand the rest of the book. And so here are the big the three things that, the, that this section teaches us that helps us in that, in that regard. The first, is, uh, the first is it reveals to us the mystery of the kingdom. What is that paradox? How does it work? Second, it reveals to us what it means for Jesus to be king. And third, it reveals to us what it means for us to be children of the king. So that's our outline. That's how we're going to roll through this today. Uh, So first, the mystery of the kingdom revealed. So maybe you've noticed, but whether we like it or not, there often often are some things uh, that are just linked together, that are just inseparable, unpleasant things with wonderful things. Uh, Turning bad habits into good habits means a tremendous amount of discipline is involved in that. There's difficulty to produce the worthwhile thing. Uh, To master any skill or develop any talent, there's perseverance and hard work. Uh, How about this? In bringing forth new life, there's suffering, deep suffering for the mother involved. Those things are inseparably linked. Like it or not, God has ordained the world to be in such a way that oftentimes very difficult and painful things are inseparably linked to the most worthwhile things in life. Uh, And that is the case with the paradox of the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 9. This is how John, when he introduces himself and introduces the, the, the main themes of the letter, this is the first thing that he says to us. I, John, your brother and partner, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. There's three key words in that, in that verse. Tribulation, kingdom, endurance. And here's the thing. How that's laid out in the Greek, the grammar is, those things are inseparably linked together. In other words, we don't get, we, it's, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not a choice. We can't just say, I'll take kingdom, please, without the tribulation and without the endurance. In the economy of the kingdom, those things are inseparably linked together. Uh, 
Why is that? Because it's the mystery of the kingdom. John is saying in that very first, that very first verse, he's presenting this truth to us that we cannot, are not able to exercise dominion or kingdom rule except through tribulation and endurance. And here's the thing. He's not talking about future kingdom rule in, the, in our future in heaven. That's what we think about it a lot. I'm going to endure and tri- through this tribulation on earth, and then someday I'll be part of the kingdom and be able to have dominion over the earth. That's not what it's saying. It's saying now. The way, in other words, the way that Christians, the way that God has empowered Christians to exercise our dominion over the earth, over the nations right now, is through tribulation and patient suffering in that tribulation. In other words, we are called, our main job, our one main job that we have is to be a witness to the truth in the culture. Culture brings pressure on us to change truth from God's truth to the culture's truth. And when we refuse to do that, when we, when we refuse to compromise, it brings tribulation. And then in that tribulation, the Spirit empowers us to endure through it and we remain a solid witness of truth in the world. And through that witness of truth, we are, we are exercising our dominion over the world and over the nations right now. That's what he's saying. And John, John is an example of this. He's on, he's on, the, listen, he's on the Alcatraz of Asia Minor. The island of Patmos, 35 miles off the coast, a rocky wasteland. He's been sent there because he is a witness to the truth of the gospel. And yet he knows that as he pens this letter, as he writes this letter and sends it out, he is a partner with Jesus and with all of us in the church in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the endurance. He knows that his writing of that letter even though he's in prison, is exercising his dominion, his kingly rule over the nations that imprisoned him on that island. And he's just following the example of Jesus, right? That's how Jesus exercised kingdom power. Uh, It's really easy to look at the cross and see the cross as a picture of defeat because Jesus dies but when we hear the backstory filled in and we understand that Jesus as king over all creation, that Jesus as our high priest, the cross was the altar. Jesus was the high priest. He offered himself up as the sacrifice and on the cross initiated a new covenant that brought salvation to the entire world. And otherwise, Jesus, by submitting himself to death and to seeming defeat on the cross, was actually exercising his kingly rule over all creation. Through death he emerged victorious into everlasting life and that is the pattern. You see it in John and John is calling us into that pattern as well by saying we're all partners in this and those three things tribulation, kingdom, endurance, they're inseparable, they all go together. Whether we like it or not. You know, so maybe, I mean the first question I'm I ask, or I've heard people ask, it's like, so, okay, what does that mean? Does that mean we're not supposed to have a nice life? Does that mean we're not supposed to be, you know, we're just, we can't be, you know, we can't be, have relationships, we can't be loved by the world, we can't buy, uh, what does that mean for us in daily life? Well, yes, God wa- 
wants us to have a nice life. God wants us to be comfortable in the world. God wants to provide for us. God wants us to have friendships in the world. But what it means is that when it comes to the decision, if we are forced to make a choice between being loved by the world or loving the world by speaking truth to it even when it doesn't want to hear it we're called to do the latter even if it means we lose stuff and that's the hard part because we know that's a potential that's a real you may you may lose something by actually by maintaining a faithful witness in the world you may lose reputation you may lose uh Opportunity. A lot of stuff we can lose, and no one wants to lose those things, right? What John is saying is, he's saying that, that, and what Christ is telling us is, that's our role in the world. Our role is to be like a foreign embassy. Like in any power, uh, in any nation, any power, there's an embassy and that embassy represents a sovereign foreign power. The embassy is very weak in that country. It can't really defend itself, and yet it represents to that country as ambassadors. It represents the foreign power, and that's like a, a, a Jesus Paul says, actually, we are ambassadors in the world. He's giving us that picture that the church is an embassy uh, of the heavenly kingdom, that we are like planted in a hostile foreign territory and we are ambassadors of the truth of God and the heavenly kingdom and we are called to be here and to represent uh, that truth. And the reality is we may be overrun. We may be not. But maybe we will be. And that's a, that's, a, that's a frightening thing. solution though the solution that's laid out throughout the book of Revelation uh, is that things are not what they seem that it seems to us like our embassy is, is so weak and so easily overrun and overpowered but we are, we are the embassy of a kingdom that is far greater than the hostile power that we're in the midst of and that when, by compromising the faith it actually brings us more despair and more fear but by standing as faithful witnesses in whatever situation God has placed us by the power of the spirit that is what brings joy that is what brings power that's what brings excitement uh, and I can tell you that that's true firsthand in China the church is electric they know at any minute cops can come in and take everybody to prison uh, they have no social standing they have no power in the world and yet the, just the palpable energy and, ex and experience of the spirit in those churches uh, is, a, is amazing. It's astonishing how different that is. I'm so glad I get to go there to be able to feel that and experience it uh, and to be really an ambassador of that reality. And that's what John is saying, the reality of the kingdom of heaven is, is that to main, we are called to maintain that faithful witness to the beauty of the gospel primarily uh, but also in conjunction with that to maintain a faithful witness of the truth of God in the world. And in that, we are exercising our kingdom rule along with Jesus, who is the king.
second thing, what it means to be king. What does it mean for Jesus to be king? Uh, we're reading through, I'm reading through Lord of the Rings with my kids. Um, we're getting towards the end of the book, and there's this, there's part in the book where the last war is over, uh, and Aragorn uh, finally assumes the kingship in Gondor. And there's this, as we were reading through it with my kids, there was this startling line that really shook, it like took me back for a minute. Here it is. Uh, it says, in the days that followed his crowning, the king sat on his throne in the hall of the kings and pronounced his judgments. And maybe just reading that quote like out of context doesn't like hit as hard, but the thing that was so startling about that is that Aragorn was such a familiar character. He was so familiar. He was like a friend. He was like just one of the guys, and then all of a sudden, he's king over Gondor, and he's in power pronouncing these judgments. He's offering forgiveness to those warring factors who have repented. He's freeing the slaves of Mordor and giving them their own land. Uh, and he's purifying the kingdom. And what's startling about it is to see someone who is so familiar yet has ascended to that kind of ultimate power where he is, has all authority and is pronouncing judgments over the world. And it just hit me, reminded me that that uh, is kind of the same thing with Jesus. Jesus is so familiar to us. We read through the Gospels and he's like with us and teaching us and the love and forgiveness of Christ is so prominent uh, in our theology and how we think about Jesus that sometimes it can be harder to think about the fact that Jesus has ascended to his throne in heaven and is right now pronouncing judgments. That's what this is saying. Let me run through all the elements uh, of this vision. It's a vision of Jesus being king. So here it goes. Here, here are the elements. Let me run through these real quick just to give you all of these are Old Testament allusions. These are all uh, pulling uh, from parts of the Old Testament that speaks about different things. So first, the, the image opens. The first thing we see is Jesus. The first thing John sees is the seven lampstands, which are the churches. And then we see Jesus in the midst of those. That's important. The first thing Jesus wants to uh, uh, express to us is that he is in the midst, present with his churches. And then it goes on from there. The long robe, the golden sash, it speaks of Jesus as our high priest. Listen to this. The hairs of his head, white like wool, comes from Daniel 7, where Jesus, uh, there's a vision that Daniel has of the Son of Man ascending into the heavenly court and giving, given the seal, uh, and in that picture, there's the Son of Man, and then there's the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is the one with the white hair like wool. But in John's depiction of that same vision, now the man and the Ancient of Days are combined into one, and Jesus is the one with the white hair that's like wool. Side note, uh, woolly hair is not uh, the European Christ that we've all come to know. Just got to point it out. Point it out. Uh, his voice like many waters, Old Testament allusion to God. His feet burnished like brass, face shining like the sun. It's speaking about his moral purity and ethical righteousness and the eyes like fire and the mouth with the sharp two-edged sword is a picture of Jesus as, as judge over all the earth. And so it's really a combined image of Jesus, high priest, 
not just representing us to God, but being the intersection between divinity and mankind in his body. The spirit from God coming through Jesus to us. He is the conduit of divine power bringing together God and man. And that's what he's representing us in that way by actually bringing us into union with the triune God and allowing us to share in the divine nature. And so there's that stunning enough a picture of Jesus as our high priest, but then it goes on from there with Jesus, the high judge. And that's judge over and including the churches. And not just that, this is not talking about Jesus as judge at the end of days. He's talking about Jesus as the high judge making and pronouncing judgments over his churches right here, right now. That's the startling thing. Man, that's the startling thing. He is sorting through the faithful, the unfaithful, and the false, and rendering judgments. In the next section, the seven letters to the churches, we see Jesus exercising, being king, making judgments over his churches. Uh, He's praising the faithful witnesses. He is disciplining the compromised churches, even sometimes, check this out, to the point of bringing death to unfaithful witnesses, just basically calling time out and bringing them home. That's a scary thought. Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, you know, other, other, other ap- episodes in the book where we can become so compromised in our faith that Jesus just calls it and brings us home. And he's also purging out some of the obviously unbelievers that have snuck into their midst and are luring God's people into destruction with false teaching. And sometimes even shutting down entire churches that become so compromised uh, that, they, that Jesus com- snuffs out their witness altogether. So, man, the question is, what do you do with that? What do we do with that? Um, I mean, we are rightly focused on uh, the grace of God and, uh, and the forgiveness of Jesus, the Jesus' forgiveness of sins uh, and what Jesus has done to forgive and, and bless and bring his church into salvation through his life, death, and resurrection. We focus on the gospel. We're a gospel-centered church. Uh, and yet, there's these other descriptions of Jesus as actively judging his church. Sometimes it's hard to know what to do with that. What to, where do we put that? How do we under, even understand that or come to grips with it? Uh, what do we do? It really shakes up our decision or our, our visual picture of the gentle Jesus and replaces it, or at least puts also in that category, high judge. And so when we ask the question, what would Jesus do? Some of the options on the table are snuff out the witness of the church, kill believers, bring them home, purge evil out of the churches, uh, and and otherwise do king-like stuff, because Jesus is king, and Jesus is judge, and he's doing it right now. And he's been doing it for 2,000 years. And that can be scary, right? 
And if you happen, you know, if you are one of the uh, obviously unbelievers that are in God, the midst of God's people, if you are a wolf and you are luring people into sexual immorality, into sensuous living, into trusting in wealth, and into denying the gospel, you should be very afraid because Jesus says, I am coming against you. And it's a wake-up call. That's legit. That's real. However, for those of us who belong to Christ, who are trusting in his finished work, trusting in his blood for our salvation, something the Holy Spirit gives us as a gift, this is encouraging to see Jesus running his church, leading his church, protecting his church, uh, purifying his church, disciplining us. I get it. I don't like it either, man. Trust me. Nobody likes discipline. Book of Hebrews says that. Nobody likes discipline. However, discipline produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness. What it's saying is Jesus loves his church so much that he's not just allowing us to sit and die and struggle, but he is in our midst working and empowering, purifying disciplining us in all of the love that you would expect of a beautiful father bringing us into the peaceable fruit of righteousness, the beauty of holiness, little by little. But that's also Jesus in his gift in the spirit working in and among us, leading his church. And so we should be encouraged by that, even though, man, even though it can be painful, even though it can be frightening, what it is is Jesus coming against the devil in our midst, breaking us from the addiction of the bait that he lays out in our path uh, and, and, and strengthening us to be who we are, which is children of the king, really co-heirs with Christ, princes, princesses. You could even say we are king, vassal kings and queens under the protection and power of Jesus. And that's the last, the last part, what it means to be children of the king. Uh, it, you know, if we just ended right there with Jesus as high judge, that might be frightening. But praise God, that's not where Jesus ends the vision. He goes on from there. Uh, at the end of the section we're in, at the end of Lord of the Rings, at the end of the battles, the great battles, the four hobbits end up returning to the Shire. Uh, and when they return home to the Shire, they find that their home has been overrun by these criminals and these ruffians. Uh, and these four hobbits who have been through so much are so transformed by what they've been through that they go up against these ruffians and they kick them out. They, ended up, they end up rescuing the Shire from these evil men. What, the transformation of these four little guys when they left the Shire to when they come back is so startling. And what's the difference? I mean, they have weapons, they have chain mail, but more than that, they've been with the king. They've experienced his beauty. Uh, they've been through some tribulation with him, and it just doesn't hit them or affect them the way it used to. And not only that, most importantly, they understand that the kingdom that they belong to is massively stronger than this tiny little criminal kingdom that they've come back home to. And they're able to stand up against that power because they know to whom and where 
they truly belong. They belong to the kingdom. And they are, even though in the midst of a hostile environment, they see and know that that hostile environment is very small and the kingdom that they belong to is very big. And that is our position. That's our reality. When we come across tribulation, when we come across uh, pressure that's meant to scare us and frighten us and make us fold and compromise with the world, we need to understand that that is a small criminal kingdom that we are in the midst pressing on us, but we belong to the kingdom of the great king of Jesus. Uh, The first thing, like I said earlier, the very first thing in the vision is Jesus standing in the midst of the lampstands which is important. It means the very first thing Jesus wanted to get across to us is that he is with his church. Jesus is with us. Uh, And so, look, John sees the vision, right? And what happens? Standard, falls like a dead man. He comes and sees the glory and perfection and majesty and ethical righteousness of Jesus. In comparison with that, he sees himself as he truly is, and he's so overwhelmed and dismayed, he falls like a dead man and what happens Jesus says that's right you better fall down no that's not what he says Jesus with with the right hand I'm impressed by how it says Jesus is holding the seven stars in his right hand and then it says he comes to John and leans down and puts his right hand on him the symbol of the power of heaven comes and he touches John and he leans down and what does he say? He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's a remarkable promise. Remarkable promise. How is it that John is not to be afraid in the midst of such glory and perfection and ethical purity? It's because Jesus says, I have died for you and I have become the living one and I have been given the keys of death and of Hades, and that means that I have died for you and you never have to die and that you are covered by my righteousness. You have no reason to be afraid, even in the presence of divine majesty. You're a child of the king. Stand up. And he goes on from there. Uh, It's not just that Jesus is with us. The vision also teaches us, shows us that we are with Jesus. That because of what Christ has done, we are now the churches, us people in the churches are now with Jesus in the heavenly places, like Paul says in Ephesians, in a very real way. How do we know that? Listen to what this says in verse 20. Uh, At the end of this, at the end of this section, uh, Jesus takes a second in, in a very rare move he gives us a straight-up interpretation of the symbols that are used in the vision. That doesn't happen often. It's important, Jesus, this is so important that we understand what's happening, that Jesus gives us a straight-ahead interpretation of what these symbols are. And he says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now there's all kind of debate about who the angels of the seven churches are. When we get to the next chapter, all of the letters to the churches are addressed to the angel of the church of Ephesus. 
to the angel of the church of Sardis, to the angel of the church of Philadelphia. And some people have all kind of debate about what that means. Some people think it's the mailman that's delivering the message because angel means messenger. Uh, but that doesn't make any sense because if you write a letter to your grandma, you don't address it to the mailman. It makes no sense. Some people think it's the pastor of the church that's because he is somehow the representative. But I don't, that's, I don't think that's it. And here's the short answer of what's happening. It's a little complex, but you have to remember this is symbolic vision. Okay? So we're going to start right now getting used to some double meanings and double, double, double meanings in visions. Uh, and you have to get this right or you'll get messed up for the rest of the book. This is not reality. We're not trying to take this and fit it to the physical conformity of our material world, which is a huge mistake when you read Revelation. Try to make it fit into physics that we know. That's not what happens. It's a vision, okay? Here's the short answer. Short answer is, the seven angels are uh, like guardian angels that are over the seven churches. We know that there are angels that are over nations, and we also know, and so it, from the book of Daniel, so it makes sense to understand that there are angels that are over uh, these churches as protectors, as guardians, uh, as the heavenly representation of those churches in heaven. Okay? Uh, and... Remember, angel means messenger or heavenly messenger. And since the churches are the witness of the heavenly truth on earth, the churches themselves are also the angels. It's kind of a double meaning. In other words, he's saying the churches, we are represented by our guardian angels in heaven, but also in another sense, the churches themselves are heavenly messengers and representatives of God's kingdom on earth. And what he's trying to teach us in that, it's he's trying to encourage us. What he's saying is the churches, they don't belong to the earth. We already belong to the heavenly realm. That's where our connection is. That's where our citizenship is. That's where we belong. Uh, and so is this picture of Jesus, the stars, which are the angels and the power of heaven, and the stars fuel the lampstands, which are the power of, 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 and the witness of heaven on earth. And it's teaching us that our place, even now, even as we struggle through all the chaos and difficulty of this world, we already belong to heaven. And not only that, but our little lampstand that we are shining here in downtown San Diego is directly connected by the Spirit to the heavenly powers and they are channeling through us the truth of God and the word of God and the reality of God to the world, giving us the ability to do our job, which is stand in faithful witness, come what may. Why is that important? Because the devil is going to constantly try to convince us that this little criminal kingdom that we're in the midst of is power not. He's telling us we are, our little lampstands are fueled by the heavenly stars, the power of heaven, the great kingdom. That's where we belong. And so when the criminal kingdom tries to convince us to compromise the truth of God and to form into demonic and disordered realities, we can say no 
because we know who we belong to and the power that is behind us. You know that, that prophecy in, uh, of Elisha and the servant? You ever know that? Elisha and the servant, they're surrounded by the Syrian army and the servant is freaking out. I, I, Elisha prays, Lord, open his eyes. He opens his eyes and surrounding the Syrian army are myriads and myriads of flaming horses and chariots. It's also a vision, right? Not, not, not that there's real flaming chariots and horses in heaven, but it's, te- it's teaching them the power that surrounds your enemies and protects you is so much greater than the power that's oppressing you right now. So don't believe the hype. Know who you are. Know who you belong to. You may be overrun, but maybe not. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether we're overrun or not. What matters is we are a faithful witness to Jesus in the world because he promises that no matter what happens, we will not be separated from the love of Christ. We will not be separated from the love of Christ. Let me end. I'm going to read uh, from the last part of Romans 8 where it talks about this specifically. Uh, And then I'm going to roll right into uh, a passage by one of my favorite theologians that kind of pulls out the meaning of Romans 8. So let's listen. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Meaning, yeah, physical bad stuff is going to happen. But it doesn't matter. And here's why. Because in all of these things, these things are why we are conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the question that the gospel of grace puts to us is simply this. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid that your weakness could separate you from the love of Christ? It can't. Are you afraid that your inadequacies could separate you from the love of Christ? They can't. Are you afraid that your inner poverty could separate you from the love of Christ? It can't. Difficult marriage, loneliness, anxiety over the children's future... They can't. Negative self-image, it can't. Economic hardship, racial hatred, street crime, they can't separate you from the love of Christ. Rejection by loved ones or the suffering of loved ones, they can't. Persecution by authorities, going to jail, they can't. Nuclear war, it can't. Mistakes, fears, uncertainties, they cannot. The gospel of grace calls out, nothing can ever separate you from the love of God made visible in Christ Jesus our Lord. You must be convinced of this, trust it, and never forget to remember, everything else will pass away. But the love of Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Faith will become vision, hope will become possession, 
that the love of Christ that is stronger than death endures forever. In the end, it is the one and only thing that you can hang on to. Amen? And that, knowing that, is what gives us the power to maintain a faithful witness in a hostile world, come what may. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the power. You are the king over all creation. You are the firstborn from the dead. You are the ruler of the kings on earth. You are our king. And you are purifying us. You are disciplining us. You are growing us. And you are strengthening us into becoming who we already are, which is children of the kingdom. So Lord, we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would sanctify us by any means necessary, no matter how painful it might be, so that we would reap the peaceable fruit of righteousness and so that we might stand as torches in the midst of a dying world, refusing to be loved by the world and instead loving the world by speaking truth and offering peace with you. Lord, help us in this mission to San Diego and throughout the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.